Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hello and welcome to Condensed Histories, the podcast that takes pop culture and reveals the real history underneath. I'm your host, Jem Daduchu, and this time round, I hope that you're going to work up a sweat. I hope that you're going to feel that burn because we're going to get physical thanks to Olivia Newton-John. Now, as I've said in the musicals episode, I cannot sing for my dear life. I ain't doing any singing in this one, but I am hoping, and obviously it would be relevant, if Greg could put in a little bit of physical. That's the actual name of the title of the 1981 smash hit by Olivia Newton-John. So, where does this take us? Well, it allows us to talk about a change. We get to focus on a woman, Olivia Newton-John. She's got a very interesting background and career. And sadly, she passed away in August of 2022. So pretty recently at the time of recording. So, you know, we, we kind of know how her, her life shaped out, but obviously this 1981 track, which I'm going to have to describe to you in terms of what's going on in the actual video, is very much to do with the 80s and on into the modern world of this idea of the keep fit and the fitness industry as a whole. And it's big business. More on that later, but obviously it talks to us about well, how did people keep fit in the past? Did people even think of the idea of something like calisthenics or, you know, weightlifting, things like that? Was that even a thing in the past? So it is interesting how it sort of fades away basically completely and then comes back again. So it's a really interesting topic which starts with a really catchy song that I cannot emphasize enough how in 1981 you could not escape this song. It was everywhere. To give you an idea, in the US alone, it sold more than 2 million copies. It went multi-platinum, and that was just the US market. It was a smash hit pretty much everywhere in the West. So, I'm going to start with Olivia herself, and then move into the actual song and kind of the really interesting alternate reality, the sort of what-ifs around this track, and then perhaps go into where we are in the modern fitness world. So, Olivia Newton-John was born in 1948 in England. 
She is a British-Australian actress, performer, singer, a whole bunch of things. Now, we tend to think of her as Australian because she definitely had an Australian twang, but there can be no doubt that she was born and her parents themselves were pretty British, sort of, because there are some really unusual connections to Olivia. So, for starters, one of her grandfathers is a guy called Max Bourne, which won a Nobel Prize for Physics. He's that smart. He's that important. He was an amazing German-Jewish physicist. And I think you can realise, hang on, if we're talking about like the 1920s and 30s here, this isn't going to go well. And indeed, a chunk of Olivia's maternal family were Jews and had to leave Germany pretty quick. They could read what was coming their way, fortunately for that family at least, and they were able to get out of Germany. There's a strange amount of anti-Semitism in this episode. I'm sorry. Well, no, not me, for the record. I'm I'm not anti-Semitic at all, but it's just interesting how it sort of rears its ugly head on several occasions. So, I mean, obviously, if that it had never happened, the family would have been very well set up in Germany, and maybe her parents would never have met at all. But let's flip over to her father's side, and her father was one of the people working in Bletchley Park in terms of trying to crack the Enigma code. So her family is really, really smart, properly very, very intelligent. And I've done a whole episode on Enigma. If you go back, I don't know know how far back, but you'll find the one on Enigma. There's a whole episode on that. I say no more on that particular topic. So she comes from a very esteemed background and the whole family, her mother's family, if you go back, sorry, mother's family is obviously Jewish, German Jewish. Father's family, if you go back far enough, is Welsh. And as I said, she was born in England. But at age five, parents came up with a pretty sensible idea. We are talking about early 1950s Britain, which was just in the grips of catastrophe, economic decline, industrial decay, a collapse of an empire, a slow death rattle of the old ways of living. So it made complete sense, quite frankly. Go somewhere else. And where could we go where everybody knows English? Uh, Let's go to Australia, which is lovely and sunny. So I don't know how much Olivia remembers of her early childhood, but pretty much from the age of five into her late teens. There she is in Australia. And she starts getting noticed in terms of both her acting ability and her singing ability. Indeed, and I love this. So 1964, so she's basically only 16 years old now. She's starting to act in various things. And Australia is kind of this strange hotbed of like getting these very young actors and actresses and sort of like moulding them and sculpting them. I mean, in the modern world, it'd be something like Neighbours or Home and Away. But, you know, we've had so many highly regarded people. It might be Kylie Minogue. It might be Russell Crowe. You know, there's a huge, huge amount of Guy Pearce. All these sort of like big names or like Oscar winners, uh, you know, multi-selling singers. You can find stuff on YouTube. It's like, really? That's them back in the day? Now, you're probably not going to find any video footage of... Olivia Newton-John from 1964, but hey-ho, that's the way it goes. In 65, however, there was one of these sort of like TV talent competitions, and it was called, because everything in the 50s and 60s on TV had to have the world's most literal name, it was called Sing, Sing, Sing. Guess what they did on that one? But she won, 
And part of the prize was to get a trip to Britain. Now, look, she at that point is sort of 17 years old. You know, her family's there, her boyfriend's there. She didn't want to go to Britain, but Australia, with the glorious weather and the booming economy, it wasn't really the focal point of culture. So if you wanted to to be a singer or an actress, Australia was not the place to really become a big name. So so her mother really encouraged her to go. It took about a year to shove her onto the transport up to Britain, across the world. And look, we've now got a sort of like 17 and then into 18-year-old Olivia sort of like plying her trade in Britain as far away from her family and her comfort zone as she could possibly be. And she got on with it. Just the next year, in 1966, she gets her first single recorded and released. It's called Till You Say You'll Be Mine. And this sort of started, because she started so young, she wasn't going for anything raunchy. And basically, she was very much sold as the girl next door type think Doris Day, but obviously Australian British, if you like. There was nothing controversial about her. You know, butter wouldn't melt in her mouth, and she was absolutely comfortable with that, and she ran with that for more than a decade. All of her tunes were kind of had a wholesome quality. She was never trying to seek any kind of controversy. To give you an idea, Physical, which comes out in 1981, that's on her 11th studio album. So she's pumping out loads of music indeed in 1973 she wins a grammy for her song let me be there for best country female vocalist let me be there in your morning let me be there in your night so she's now won a grammy in america in 1973 and she's sort of gone into the country scene so she's been on low-budget Australian stuff, she's been on the pop tunes in Britain, and now she's doing country stuff in America in the 1970s. So it's fair to say she's had a diverse career, but she's being guided in many different interesting ways. On her time, she sort of like rubbed shoulders with the likes of Bob Dylan and George Harrison. You know, these are, you know, back in the early 70s, late 60s, that's as big a name as you could probably get. And these people are willing to sort of like write stuff for her and let her perform. And so she's making the money. She's well-respected. She's winning accolades as well. This is all going well, but it goes to another level in 1978 and Greece. Now, to give you an idea, Greece, when it came out in 78, that was the single biggest grossing movie in America of that year. Forget about any other film which came out in 78. And then on top of that, there's the album with all the music on it. Now, Greece had previously been a musical play. I barely mentioned in the musicals episode. Sorry about that. But, you know, I had a lot of musicals to get through. But it was obviously on the stage first. And then it becomes this movie sensation and the soundtrack was just being played well into 1979 you know hit after hit many of the songs not all of them but many of the songs becoming sort of like chart toppers or into hot 100 that kind of thing and if you like Greece absolutely played on her girl next door image because Sandra G was definitely that kind of girl which she'd been playing for more than a decade of course it is ironic that if you do the maths it came out in 78 she was born in 48 so there she was 30 years old playing the kind of little teenage ingenue which most of the actors in Greece were way older than what they were meant to be I mean some of them might be approaching middle age but anyway 
nothing take you away. It's just an incredibly fun movie. But you may remember at the end of the film, after she's played this sort of like slightly sheepish girl next door throughout the whole film, right at the end, she's suddenly super sexy with You're the One That I Want, that last song there. You better shape up. And if you like, that was the start of her resetting herself. You know, she's now a woman in her early 30s. She feels far more in control of her career. She's done it all, basically. And so she decides to get a bit sexy. And some of her songs are a little bit raunchy. By modern standards, they're still very wholesome. And physical is, if you like, the epitome of this change into something a bit more sexy. Now, what's interesting is, and this brings us to physical, is it was written by Steve Kipner and Terry Shaddock. And they were trying to find the right person to sing it. And what I find interesting is their first choice was Rod Stewart. And the song was the same, but obviously Rod was going to sing it in a very different way to Olivia. And if you don't know who Rod is, he's a sort of like a, he was a super virile kind of rock singer from Scotland. And he's got this amazing gravelly voice. He's still sort of like kicking it out, even though he's in his 80s now. Well done, Rod. And, you know, in the 70s, he was having big hits with things like I Am Sailing. The point is, using the lyrics there about being physical and, like, let me see your body rock and all that kind of stuff, it was more about guys in the gym pumping iron, earning that burn, you know, no pain, no gain. And so it was going to be a super macho type song. Now, clearly, Olivia Newton-John couldn't do that. So instead, this whole thing about body rock and all this kind of stuff, you know, it's a bit more sexy. And when she runs in, in her lycra, with her leg warmers, a quick piece of information for those of you born after 1989, when people were walking around in the 1980s, there was this incredibly cold wind that only went about 40 centimeters above the ground okay just over a foot above the ground it was an incredibly icy chilly wind and therefore we all had to strap something around our lower parts of our legs to make sure that we remained comfortable in terms of our body temperature so that is why she is wearing those leg warmers the leg warmers were just everywhere in the 1980s and what i find interesting is i have seen a few young women and i'm talking like teenage girls now in the 2020s wearing them again you know the 80s is back again and and that's something that's suddenly popped up again look you do you have fun with that but anyway the point is she is dressed if you want to know what somebody wanted to look like in the gym in like 1981 just freeze frame olivia newton john but what is she who's she working out with she's working out with these basically these fat slobs you know these guys who are wheezing and middle-aged and they got paunches and they're sort of in ill-fitting outfits and you know she she's sort of like so sort of sprayed into that lycra it looks like if you tried to give her a hug you just bounce off her kind of thing it looks sort of elasticated whereas these other guys they're just ah, oh, they just need a hug and they're clearly been completely outstripped by olivia so if you like there's an element of female empowerment there anything the guys can do i can do better kind of thing huge hit bit of sense of humor little bit sexy as well it just if you like it hits all the quadrants all the women were looking at it going i'd kill to have a body like that and all the men were looking at it going i'd kill to get near a body like that but anyway i say no more than that but it just it absolutely knew how to sell but most importantly while i've just sort of talked about if you like gimmicks the reality is olivia newton john had by then for 13 years been singing she knew how to sing. She has an 
excellent voice. You can't do a musical and you can barely hum. Unlike Marlon Brando and Guys and Dolls, but I've already talked about that. But anyway, the point is, she's won a Grammy, so she's more than capable of being able to, to sing this. Now, interestingly, this came just off something that was a cross-section between both areas, her acting and singing career, because in 1980, there was a huge, I'm not making this up, it was kind of a roller disco movie where Olivia Newton-John plays a goddess that comes into modern-day America and falls in love with a mortal man, and it's called Xanadu. We are in Xanadu. It is widely considered one of the worst films ever. It was a huge flop. Basically, after Grease and here she is singing again, it's like, this is going to be the biggest movie ever. And it really wasn't. But ELO made the title track Xanadu and she sung her heart out in that. So it was one of these weird things where the movie was a complete box office disaster and absolutely ripped to shreds by critics. But everybody loved the title track and it was again a huge hit for her. So she sort of walked away with it with a certain amount of dignity. But also there was a feeling that, well, I mean, let's face it, in Greece, she's not the lead. And there is this sort of general consensus is she works well in a group. You know, if she's part of an ensemble cast, she's great. But there's a reason why she never won Best Actress, if you like. She's not that kind of actor. So there we go. Xanadu, Greece. I do hope that Greg's been throwing in some of this stuff while we've been going through. There's nothing else for me to do. I'm hopelessly This is mainly physical, but it would be great to just get at least the sort of like her belting out Xanadu. It's a very ELO type track once you know that. So, look, I think I've, I've sold to you that this was a big thing. And also picking up on the fact that in the early 80s, we're getting more of this kind of health and fitness type stuff pouring out of America. Mainly West Coast, California type thing. You know, the whole San Francisco, the Bay Area all this kind of stuff was always sort of a little bit more, I say always, but post-World War II was just more liberal in a sense of like, you know, looking at alternate lifestyles and alternate diets and things like that. You know, vegetarianism, maybe we can go further than that. Let's look at veganism and like spirituality and let's sort of combine all these Eastern ideas. You can argue that's cultural appropriation. You could argue that they just sort of cherry-picked the bits that sort of like would work well to the West and neatly ignore some of the other stuff, which we don't have time to go into now. But the point is, whether you like it or not, that kind of California, particularly 1970s vibe, has very much influenced the whole world today. You know, sort of 50 years on kind of thing. And so, you know, so we are having conversations about vegetarianism, veganism, you know, where diet is absolutely something that we talk about, you know, the five a day and all that kind of good stuff. And by the way, I'm, I'm not against any of this elements at all. But what I find interesting is that, well, to give you an idea, the most recent numbers I could find came from 2021. And the turnover in America of the fitness industry was 33 and a quarter billion dollars. So when you start talking about that much money, clearly not everything is, how can I put it? Well, using a Jewish term, not exactly kosher. So look, if you keep picking up a heavy weight, 
again and again over weeks, you will build up muscle mass. Now, what I find really interesting is I've looked into this. We see muscles as important, as fitness. If you like, the, the quintessential element is the rippling six-pack. And let's face it, it's on ancient Greek statues, okay? If you like, the, the idea of physical perfection has been wrought in stone two and a half thousand years ago. But what's interesting is if you ask any kind of doctor that's an expert in this area. Mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings from premium gifts to show stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15 stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. They will say that not having any subcutaneous fat, i.e. no fatty deposits around your belly, so you can see the musculature underneath it, which is what a six-pack is, that doesn't in any way tell you anything about fitness. All it tells you is they don't have any fat around their tummy, basically. And when you look at top athletes, there are some, a few, where they do have six-packs, but a lot of them don't. And if we are going to sort of go into the macho era of fighting, we'll have a look at, like, heavyweight boxers, because in theory, they should have rippling abs, but they don't, because they need a little bit of cushioning. And, and generally, when you get to something really extreme, like Stallone did in time for Rocky IV, if we're going to stay with boxing, or Rocky IV, or Rambo, First Blood Part Two. He is down to less than 3% body fat. He looks like he's chiseled out of marble. He looks like one of those statues from ancient Greece. But the point is that wasn't, that was meant to be the idea of perfection. It wasn't actually what you can physically actually do. And whenever you look at things like the world's strongest man, none of them have abs. They got bellies, but they got extremely large arms because they need to be piling on the calories to be able to lift these sorts of, well, I mean, sometimes it's like, 800 pound weights it's just 
ludicrous what they're able to do and move and push. By the way, the world record for the highest load deadlift, so that's, you know, picking up this like, massive weight, is 1,001 kilos. So that's just ridiculous what you can do. Hathor Bjornsson, he played the mountain in Game of Thrones. Uh, yes, he's that big. So anyway, the point is, we don't have time to go down the rabbit hole of nutrition and stuff like that. But if we look at exercise... Well, you do have to be a little bit careful about this. Full disclosure, what's interesting is when it came to lockdown and we couldn't go out and spend our money elsewhere, the amount of people buying barbells and dumbbells and things like that shot through the roof across the whole world. So much so that in Britain, there is this sort of like basket of standard goods to assess what is inflation doing. You know, how much are each one of these items going up? Because, for example, people aren't going to be buying a hairbrush every week. That would be a bad one to have in there. But what was interesting is that during 2020, they changed the basket because, you know, people were no longer eating out, for example. We were staying at home and they actually put weights into there as part of that standard basket. And indeed, I bought progressively larger and larger weights. I went from five kilos to seven and a half kilos to then 10 kilos. And I was doing pretty well with them. However, I kept pushing it and I kept pushing it and I'm getting older and I'm getting older. And basically towards the end of 2022, something went funny and it hurt. And I, because I'm a man, I'm an idiot. I decided to push through the pain, which is something that you get in these videos and stuff. It's like, just keep going. Pain's all in the mind. No, the pain's coming from the tendon that you've accidentally torn. And it, I made it a lot worse and it took me ages to recover. So anyway, yes, you have to be careful about this stuff. There's all this sort of like macho stuff. And, you know, I talked about macho, but also toxic masculinity. You know, I, again, there's only so much time I've got on this podcast, but there's no doubt that there is a dark side, a negative side. You know, when people start to like sculpting their bodies to win things like Mr. Universe and they start using anabolic steroids and things like that, obviously that is not what you're meant to be doing. But there is nowadays a kind of, how can I put it? almost a class system of are you fit or not you know people talk about you know you shouldn't body shame people the word fat now is considered incredibly pejorative i mean i can say it because i'm not making reference to anybody in particular but it's almost like a you know swear word and it's like it, it's a legitimate word to explain somebody who's obese but it's sort of like you know oh we can't do this we can't do that and, and you know oh look at them look at the size of their muscles or their you know, rippling abs and, and suddenly we think that they're a better person it's like well all that tells you is that they can work out in the gym and and as i said earlier i was sort of alluding to this that, that i've sort of like looked into the biology one of the reasons why it is hard to create sort of that muscle mass is for basic evolutionary purposes because muscles take up a lot of energy you know that if you've ever tried to work out over a period of time it's taken a huge amount of energy to get slightly bigger and why is that because they use up lots of energy to maintain so that's why basically because we were hunter gatherers that's how our bodies were designed there was times of feast times of famine so actually the reality is we don't need large muscles because we need to be eating so much protein ask anybody who's trying to like bulk out etc you know, the carbs will give you the energy to run a marathon, but it's all that boiled chicken if you want to start building up the actual muscle mass. And yes, going back to our ancient ancestors, we weren't necessarily going to be able to catch a woolly mammoth every single week. That's the interesting thing. So basically, muscle mass takes a huge amount of energy to put on, and it very quickly falls off again. And because... We like to like, feast and famine with our ancestors. When we see food, we like to try and eat as much of it as possible because we don't know where the next meal's coming from. Or at least that's the way it was 10,000 years ago. Now we know exactly where the next meal's from and we might be tempted to gorge ourselves on that as well. And that's how we get tummies. 
okay? It doesn't take rocket science to work it out. If you if you don't burn all the calorific energy putting into your body, it will be stored in the form of fat, okay? So, bit of biology there, bit of what the situation of the of the world is around this stuff. If you would like me to talk a little bit, I, I did an episode, I'm saying years ago, about the history of food and certain types of food where they originated from. I could do something on that, and I could do something to do with, like, spices and things like that, but also an element of, like, our nutritional understanding. You know, some of the weird things we used to eat in the past, which we thought were good for us. Let me know. I, I'm at Gemdaducha on Twitter. Always want to take advice from people, ideas from people. Say hello to me. Thank you very much. And, yes, look, while, while I'm saying it, please click subscribe and share this stuff. I do tweet it out. But also, if you could just tell people about it. You know, hey, I'm listening to this interesting podcast. All that good stuff. Thank you very much. All right. As I said, you know, going back to the hunter-gatherer era, we've got no idea what they were doing to keep fit. But if you like, they are an example. Because in the modern world, in the, in the 21st century, there are still tribes out there in various different places. It could be in the outback in Australia. It could be in the jungles of Brazil. It could be in the Serengeti of Africa. There are pre-industrial groups. And we can get an idea of what their hunter-gatherer activities would have been like with our ancestors you know, 10,000 years ago in Europe. So what you will find is that nobody is particularly heavy, okay? And and what's interesting, there are some cultures where more sedentary populations, where they've actually got farming rather than just hunter-gatherers, where basically the larger you are, the more attractive you are. Because basically what it's saying is, I can afford to feed myself and my family. So if you're chunky, you are desirable. Whereas in the West... If you basically look like a coat hanger, then that's considered the most desirable and attractive, and that doesn't really make sense. I mean, something in the middle, everybody, might be what we're aiming for. A little bit of padding is important to protect our internal organs and things like that. Too much, and leads to obesity and diabetes and all that kind of stuff. Not enough, you're far more susceptible to catching uh, to, to temperature changes because there just isn't any insulation going on in your body at all. It can make you more vulnerable to illnesses as well. So... Yeah, it's like all these things. Everything in moderation. Okay, people? And remember, this is just a guy who tends to specialise in history. So, yeah, don't take this as sort of like a medical podcast, please. Don't, don't do that. Anyway, so the point is, these people tend to be pretty fit. Um, you know, they're, they're lean rather than anything else. And so, yeah, they're not necessarily carrying a lot of weight, but they also don't have like rippling... Well, maybe they do have abs, but, you know, depending on how you know, how well they've been eating recently, but they don't, they, they are not going to be worrying Bane from Batman or anything like that in terms of their body mass size, because they just can't keep that going in those sorts of environments. So clearly there is an element of physical exertion keeps you fit. So I'm not going to call that the fitness industry or kinesthetics or athletics or gymnastics or anything like that, because you're actually making a choice in those situations. Like I chose to buy those dumbbells and I chose to start lifting them up. Those are a choice. But let's take your average medieval peasant in a field. You know, they'd be walking miles every day. They might be moving heavy agricultural equipment, helping to plow fields. You know, they'll give you blisters on your hand. They're actually doing a pretty hefty workout. So they were unlikely to be, again, larger. They were going to be fairly thin. Also, they would have had very little meat and protein in their diets. It would have been largely vegetables, not out of a vegetarian choice, but out of a cost choice and availability choice. So that's what's going on there. But let's look at, of course, the place that's an obvious one to go to. Let's go to ancient Greece. 
So let's go to the classic ancient Greek era. You know, we're talking about the end of the 400s into the 300s BC. So, you know, this is the classic time of like Athenian democracy, a Peloponnesian war, all that kind of stuff. You know, the, the, everything you're thinking about, basically, they've either recently died or been recently born or whatever. It, you know, all the uh, philosophies there, etc. And we need to look at Hippocrates or Hippocrates, as, as Bill and Ted might end up calling him. So he was basically, you've heard of the Hippocratic Oath, uh, the concept in in medicine about if you're a doctor, you should do no harm. So he is the sort of like the father of medicine. Got plenty of things wrong. Again, don't really have time to go into that. But he did write various treaties in terms of making sure you're eating basically the right things. So in other words, you should be eating meat because that gives you energy, but don't only eat meat because you clearly need other things in your system. Now, he didn't know about sort of like specific nutrients and antioxidants and all that kind of stuff. This is way beyond his understanding. But let's face it, if you think of the classic Mediterranean diet, let's say some fish, let's say salad next to it, olives, that kind of thing, maybe some feta cheese, that is a pretty healthy meal. And if it's not the fish, maybe it's some lamb. So anyway, you know, that's a pretty good way to be eating. But he did specifically write about sort of like lifting of weights and things like that. And we, of course, in the era of the Olympic Games. So if you like, people were training to then artificially do exercise in front of everybody and try to do it better than Thebes or Sparta or Athens, whatever. So, yes, so there were people who were training at that time. If you like, an esoteric concept. Not a medieval farmer who was getting up every day and basically going through the steps of training, but doing it because that was the day job. On this occasion, this wasn't the day job, but I'm doing it because I'm trying to reach a specific goal so that I can then win the wrestling in the Olympic Games or something like that. I do like the story of Milo of Croton. Obviously, it's hard to tell if this was true or not, but certainly it's, this would have been feasible for a while. But he would carry a calf on his back every day until it was fully grown, which is quite a clever idea. Because, of course, the, the calf is slowly growing in size. So you are carrying it every day. So you're actually carrying a heavier weight and heavier weight and heavier weight. That's actually quite clever. Although, do make sure the cow wants you to do it. Saying that, though, if a cow doesn't want to get picked up, it'll let you know. But yeah, I cannot see feasibly... I don't know how big you are as a guy. You're unlikely to be able to carry a fully on your back of a fully grown cow. So I'm saying part of that is not true. Although maybe he started off with a calf, which is eminently doable, and kept going until I just can't pick up this calf anymore. But, the, you know, that would be a, that's quite a clever way of doing it. You know, nowadays we do it with like adding extra weight to the side of the, you know, the weights that we're going to be doing a deadlift of, you know, bench pressing and all that kind of stuff. So... That's, you know, we're talking about ancient Greek era. Uh, I am going to sort of like briefly jump into the medieval era and say, if you want to stretch it a little bit, martial training obviously happened where people were trained. We're obviously talking about the aristocracy here, where they did train in full armor so that they could get a feel for the weight and, and all that kind of stuff. And indeed, if you were using a larger weapon, something like a two-handed sword or a battle axe or something like that, and also you're wearing armor, then again, just sort of like keep going through the processes, preparing for war, training, you're absolutely breaking a sweat. You're absolutely working up the working those muscles. And of course, these people are likely to have 
better food, so they're eating more protein, so therefore probably could pack on the the muscle to a certain extent. I mean, this is basic the basic theory behind how did knights even become knights. It's sort of like at some point their family had to be peasants, but they just happened to be a bit bigger than everybody else. They could shove everybody else around, which gave them access to better food, which meant that they could become even bigger and their kids were even stronger. And so you kind of like this, you know, quite frankly, in let's say the year 1400, when we talk about, oh, the aristocracy were no better than your average peasant, they were. They were physically fitter and better, like, better trained. I'm not saying that that's right. I'm not saying that I'm yay pros sort or of like hereditary rule or anything like that. But yeah, they they were sort of like the supermen of their days. And indeed, there was something called an armoured vault, which we know that Henry VIII in his youth and Henry V were able to do. And that's basically run up to the back of a horse and put your hands onto the rump of the horse and vault yourself, sort of launch yourself into the saddle in full armour, which probably the horse wasn't too happy about, but is clearly a an impressive physical thing that you aren't going to do first time. You're only going to do it through training. So by them actually doing that kind of stuff, that's important. And then there was the element of the longbow, you know, the, the classic weapon of, of Britain in the Hundred Years' War against France. Why didn't the French start using the longbow? They kept using crossbows, which their range was a little bit shorter, their penetrating power was similar, but the problem was you could only fire two of those bolts maximum in a in a minute, so you had to sort of like wrench it back, sort of ratchet it back again. It took time and energy to actually do that, whereas in the meantime you just keep firing a longbow over, over and over again. You pro- probably get about 25 shots on a longbow in a minute compared to the two from the crossbow and they can't reach quite as far so why didn't everybody switch to longbow because a longbow is nearly six foot long and made out of you and so when you string it you have to really tense that bow and to draw it all the way back with this longer arrow it meant you know bringing your you know pulling back that cord all the way to your ear that drawing power is what made it so lethal in terms of range and penetrating power But that constant pulling back and pulling back, if you've never done it before, you can't do it. So you need to train on it. Indeed, uh, you know, battlegrounds like Talton, you can tell who the archers were who died because some of them have their vertebrae fused together from this repeated exercise over and over again. You know, they would have had perhaps a slightly larger bulbous right arm to their left arm. And they might look slightly funny. By law, if you had a little land holding, you had to train with the longbow. This took time. And in France, there was no culture of that. So why would they do that? So it meant that these people were training and doing basically weights all the time. Maybe I'm overstretching it. Instead... We have to leap so far forwards into the 1800s, basically into the time of the Industrial Revolution, where suddenly we're getting a lot of people no longer working on the land, sitting in offices or or even in factories. You You may have been poor and in a factory, but you weren't suddenly walking miles every day. And your job may have been dangerous, but it may not have necessarily been physically demanding like working a field or something like that. So we get, and again, I can mention a woman here. We get specifically canisthenics. This is specifically a word that comes up in the 19th century, the 1800s, and really it's about exercise. It's keep fit, as we would call it today. And we can talk about a woman, Catherine Beecher. Basically, in the mid-1800s, she was very much about the role of the woman, sort of empowerment for women. And part of that she was saying about keeping fit for women and was like teaching them techniques in terms of like, you know, lifting and sort of like stretching and things like that. And the other person who's like critical to this sort of movement is Frederick Ludwig Jahn. Um, And he 
was sort of into this sort of again the sort of like the gymnastics things like push-ups and using your own body you don't necessarily need equipment you can just do it yourself and unfortunately while he absolutely got it right he was in Germany at the time of the Napoleonic Wars and eventually it's a whole thing you know basically the whole of Prussia which is part of modern day Germany got taken over by Napoleon eventually got kicked out and there's this whole thing about how do we restructure Prussia after the devastation of Napoleon. And there were a number of people out there who were sort of saying, well, we need to make, you know, Germany for Germans, basically. Which, we, you know, he's on record as saying we need to get rid of all the gypsies and the Jews again. Like I said, there's sadly going to be a fair amount of anti-Semitism in this one. Apologies for that. But interestingly, I'm going to keep with Germans and go to somebody who is in no way anti-Semitic. But we got the guy called Pilates. Now, I thought Pilates might have been, I don't know, I mean, the name's slightly odd, but it's like, oh, maybe this is Buddhist. Maybe this goes back 2000 years. No, it, it comes from basically World War One, where he was this guy using basically everything you know about Pilates today. He was doing for real. OK, he was believing in this, basically using your own body, very basic equipment. And he was there to sort of like help train things like policemen to actually become better at their job, right? Chasing down miscreants. Then World War One happened and it's like, hang on, you guys kind of need to be put in. Let's put the Germans into a sort of like kind of like a prison. And, you know, they were sort of like kept away. It wasn't sort of like a brutal prison or POW camp or anything like that. But basically everybody, you can you can get a bit flabby just sitting there sort of like kind of locked up. So he used on other people there his techniques and they actually left internment fitter than they were starting it. So the great thing about Pilates is it's nowhere near as old as you think it is and actually it's sort of like it's it's almost prison exercise think of it that way i love that one so with that said and done i'm just going to say look there's another podcast coming soon but please again if you could sort of like click subscribe all that good stuff thank you very much but as always another podcast coming soon Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.